Hello and welcome to another episode of Fekara Wetschet. Today I will take you to Ireland, to be um, precise, to Wexford, which is on the southeast coast of Ireland. And uh, my interviewee tonight is one of my longest uh, colleagues or the people I know the longest at Fekava. It is the uh, previous Irish Fekava president, Peter Murphy. Good evening, Peter. Hello. Good evening, Wolfgang. Nice to see you again. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's, always, it's always nice to talk to you. I think the Irish are always sort of... Uh, Far more than the English, I think. You know, I've lived for many, many years in England. People of words. So you, you're far more, I think you are far more, what shall I say? Chatty. Elegant. Chatty. Chatty. Yeah, no. chatty, but also sort of the, the, the use of language is just better. So somebody like James, James Choice, for example, uh, had to come from Ireland. Couldn't come. Yeah, I mean, I will be crucified now by my English <laughs> friends, but but it's it's just yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I often find that the people from Ireland are sort of say they like literature, they like like the spoken words, they use it yeah. also. It's far as you said, it's far easier to start chatting with people in Ireland, and yeah. uh, also if you go in uh, into a pub in Ireland. So uh, don't worry, you won't be alone very long. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> very I, true. I, I always said when I when when I was on the west coast of Ireland, sort of in Dingle and and, and and these places, I thought somewhere in heaven there will be an Irish corner. I bet because it's so <laughs> you you get into one of these places, you're on your own. And then somebody is uh, in the corner with a fiddle and somebody sings and some other people drink beer and then they spot right away if you are not sort of from around there. So they, they drag you into a chat, obviously in hope that you buy the next round of beer. <laughs> but it is, it is so nice. It's, I don't know. Yeah, sociable, sociable, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, Peter, I, I mentioned already, um, you have represented uh, uh, the Irish small animal veterinary colleagues uh, within FICAVA for, for many years. But before we go to that, I would like to, to, uh, to step really far back and have a little bit of um, strolls through sort of... Uh, uh, yeah, through the time many, many years ago, sort of when, 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 when you started becoming a vet and then how this all evolved. And this is now not just sort of looking backwards, but I think this is always so that you can take little pearls of wisdom out of, of that, what was done in the past. Otherwise, sort of history makes no sense. So if you can't use it also for the future and a lot of our listeners are saying and uh, um, viewers are of a younger generation than we are, and uh, they might be encouraged by one or the other, or maybe discouraged, I don't know, by one or the other thing that we are sort of talking about. So tell me, yeah. how, how did that all come, come about with you becoming a veterinary surgeon? Um, well, you come from a veterinary family? Yes, my father was a veterinary surgeon before me, you see, and uh, he, he started the practice in Wexford in 1949, I think, 
mm-hmm. and he, uh, uh, as Ellen knows well, the building is still there that he actually started in. It's a really small little kind of a one-room building, you know, and uh, like I can remember very well that I always wanted to be a vet. My brother is a priest, and we used to share a room together, and we used to say to one another at kind of ten or twelve years of age, "What are you going to be when you grow up?" You know, and I'd say, "I'm going to be a vet," you know, like like that, you know, and he'd say, "I'm going to be a priest," you know, <laughs> but I, I was the eldest. I was the eldest of 10 children. Uh, so I kind of, uh, uh, you know, it was obvious I would have an interest in veterinary and I have a very distinctive memory. You know, you asked me to go back over my life, but I have a very clear memory of all of my life and how it happened and what we did, you know. And uh, I had my earliest memory in relation to veterinary is I remember standing at half past four a.m. Uh, at the front door with my hand on the, uh, on, the, on the thing, waiting. My father was a large animal vet and I had heard the phone ringing and knew there was an emergency. So I raced out of bed down and I had my phone, uh, hand on the, on, the, on the lock waiting for him. And of course, he being an older vet said, I'm going to get another half an hour's sleep before I go out to this guy, you know? And mm. uh, like I had, I had real enthusiasm at that stage and I knew from then that that was my destiny for sure, you know? And I often think... Like even to this day, I, ha- I feel the same enthusiasm. I know I'm retiring, but I have to retire because I'm 71 almost now. And if I'm going to get 10 good years of, you know, being good to myself, I, I need to retire. But I mean, I still have the same enthusiasm, uh, enthusiasm for veterinary. And my colleagues all say the same thing. Oh, God, it's amazing, you know. And it's interesting you talk about the teaching thing, because when I sold my practice recently, one of the things that the new buyers or corporate group said you know, we'd be really interested in, in you teaching our, our, our um, vets and nurses, you know, how to do things, you know, the way you do them or whatever, you know, which I thought was a nice compliment because I, I have done a huge amount of teaching within the practice in my lifetime. So anyway, I was 12 years of age and uh, then uh, I suppose um, at that, a year later, maybe I was sent away to boarding school to Clongoeswood College, which is one of the best boarding schools in Ireland, you know, and uh, uh, it wasn't a great experience for me. And I was like a prison that time, you know, but uh, but I, you know, fortunately, it was always clever. Like, and I won the gold medal for mathematics there and did really well in my exams and all that kind of thing. And they were all saying to me, oh, you know, you should become a, um, what do you call those insurance guys that, can't think of the name now, but I think in a minute, that, the, the, you know, the guys that assess risk and probability for insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, oh, you should, you should uh, become one of those and all that. And I said, you know, no, I'm absolutely clear that I want to study veterinary, you know. And then uh, did really well in my, in my leaving certain exams at the equivalent of your A-levels and uh, went into college. And that time, the way entry into veterinary college used to work was that everybody who wished to do veterinary in the country was allowed into first-year science. And there was four subjects, that, um, uh, biology, botany, can't remember the other two, but, but anyway, um, the first 50 got into vet school then after that so so and, i can tell and you was it at the time and was it at the time already so that the course was sort of uh, more oversubscribed than human medicine or well there were there were in my class in that in first year veterinary there were 200 entries for the first year and 50 of those got through and the others had to go on to agricultural science or something that like is that. tough that is tough. Yeah, but I had been talking to my uh, professor, who was my uh, and my supervisor under my PhD. I had a lot of discussion with him about it, and he said that before that, 
it was all who you knew and influence and all that. And he said, like, he as a, as a kind of a professor used to get kind of letters from the president and letters, letters from the archbishop and all this kind of thing to try and influence him to accept people, you know, so they couldn't have that either. Yeah. So it was a little bit fairer, you know, but now it's based on the point system in the in the Leaving Cert exam. So it's tough. It's tough now for, for people who really want to study veterinary, you know. So as I say, I went into that first year and I bought my ass off like to get and uh, ended up getting forced out of the 200, you see, to get through into vet college. And I was delighted with myself and all that, you know. And then in those old days, Bethany College was very old style, old fashioned, but it was separate from the rest of the university and it had a huge reputation to keep up. Like you had to win the boxing competition for the university and you had to win the soccer and you had to win the rugby and all that. So they were very sporty like in that. And I mean, the legendary, or the veterinary dances and all that kind of thing were legendary kind of thing in yeah. terms of knee stuff, you know. So anyway, uh, to cut a long story short, um, in second year, I decided that I was in now and I wasn't going to bother my ass to work on, you know. And uh, I, um, uh, I remember, uh, especially in physiology, I had studied no physiology going into the exam. The night before the exam, I took out the papers to discover that every year six subjects came up. Four, or, you know, like if I studied six subjects and I only had to answer five, I think, or four. And uh, so I studied those five the night before the exam and uh, <laughs> went in anyway. And uh, sure enough, the five subjects came up or whatever and did a brilliant exam. And then in the oral, there was an old professor. He was from, from uh, Edinburgh, actually, I think, originally, uh, uh, Charlie McAleer. But Charlie used to always ask in the oral to either of two questions, either uh, tell me about mountain sickness or what would you like to talk about? And you always said you'd like to talk about mountain sickness and his smile would go from ear to ear. <laughs> so sure enough, that's what happened. I ended up getting 66% or something in the exam <laughs> and sailed through. But I, his junior guy, Tommy McGeady, he, he, he had copped what I, I had done, you know? And when I went in, he ate me. And the minute I went into the oral, he said, Murphy, he's such a real easy, you know? And I... <laughs> I said to him, look, you need to give me a chance in this order because I did know a little bit about his subject, you know. And no, he, he went on. And uh, we became firm friends all through my veterinary life afterwards. And every time we'd meet up, he'd say, ah, oh, Murphy, he'd say, you lazy bastard. <laughs> and I'd say, ah, oh, McGeady, you wouldn't give me a chance to prove myself or whatever, you know. But, so, mm -hmm. but it yeah. is, I mean, that, that, that was possibly sort of the, the case with me and my exam groups uh, exactly the same. So I was convinced, and I'm, I'm probably also right, that most of the people I was in exam groups with um, definitely knew more than I did. But yes. somehow I managed to communicate the little that yeah. I knew in a more palatable form that it That's was right. very often so that I then came out with far better grades than they did. And they said, how the hell did you <laughs> do it? But... Um, is, I never felt I never felt too bad about it because no. let's face it in companion animal veterinary medicine it's communication that is just yeah, so important yeah. and That's I mean know your skills. limits don't do yes, don't yes. do silly things you are not up to but then if you communicate well that what you know and then that what you don't know in my case if I always had really good people around me and then I referred. There is, mm -hmm. I, I mean, and I didn't feel bad about it at all because, I mean, that is bread and butter sort of uh, work which every vet really needs, communicating. You, you, yes. And that I sometimes find is kind of, 
maybe sometimes in, in short supply these days, mm? so that you have Frequently sometimes now. really good vets, but they just don't like to talk to clients. And then um, they, they get sometimes a lot of criticism, although they really do good work. Mm. Yep. Yeah, it's a huge problem, you know. I, I had a, a client one, one night who rang me up and he says, I'm just ringing up to know what was wrong with my animal because the, the, the vet came out and he said nothing, you know. And I mean, that's an absolute disgrace. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, to fast forward a bit, the following year, uh, the professor of pharmacology had uh, failed 34 of 60 in the, in the year that we were coming into, you know, and we were terrified. So I ended up working my ass off again and I came first to the pharmacology exam. <laughs> so then anyway, I went, went on anyway to do final year. And, uh, uh, and meanwhile, all the time, I was seeing a lot of practice with my father. I got a huge amount of, of seeing practice with my father and, uh, at that time. And then in the later years in college, I, I had a, a, a about nine months of equine practice down in the, in the Cora with uh, Stan Cosgrove, who was a great man. And then I had really good small animal practice in Dublin with Johnny Coslo and, uh, and uh, Eddie um, Mealy. And the two of those are still alive to this day and, and working like Johnny Coslo actually runs one of the databases, Animark database, you know. And I meet them regularly and we have we just like four days, you know, it's great. But, uh, but I, I, I remember one thing that really stood to me was uh, when I was working with Johnny Costello. He had a contract uh, with uh, the Blue Cross. You have the Blue Cross in England? It's basically yep. a charge yeah. for small animals and that kind of thing. They, they, they work for free kind of thing in the, in, the, in the poor areas of Dublin, you know. But Johnny had a contract and he was a real businessman, you know, <laughs> Johnny made a fortune out of, out of uh, his buildings and all that. But, but he, he had a contract uh, to do an hour in a kind of a caravan thing up in, in Cabra or whatever, you know? So he used to bring me to the Gresham Hotel for, for, for dinner beforehand. Mm. And he says, now, Peter, he says, I'm getting whatever it was, 70 pounds or whatever for an hour up here, he says. And that means an hour, he says, that means we go in at half six and we come out at half seven, you know? <laughs> and he says, now you're going to do all the clinical stuff and I'm going to do the referrals for surgery and uh, vaccination and things for which he was getting paid separately, you see? So he was doing the money and leaving all the clinical stuff to me. But of course, it was a morass. Like you'd go up and there'd be 50 or 60 people with animals there, you know? And he says, you have one minute with each animal. He says, make up your mind, give it a treatment. And that's it, you know, but it was the best education ever. And he was behind me. So if there was something that like a parrot that had, you know, uh, some sort of a discharge or something, I didn't know what the hell it was. He said, well, that's something such, you know, give it this and let it out, you know. Mm. <laughs> and we just let yeah. it through and through and through. And well, and, so and you probably also didn't have a receptionist or something like that. So payment you no, had no, to no. take at the same time. And uh, you well, had this, to send... this is like This is like a motor home, you know. So they came in yeah. one end other end you know, and there was yeah. a table in between but, but I mean it's just you see so much and you learn so much and you get you know good practice of, of observation and all that really quick you know and uh, so that was that really stood to me then you know so ultimately anyway I qualified in Dublin uh, in 73 and I had done really well like I got I got first class honours in medicine and all that kind of stuff you know I'm a second in the class and, and uh, I sort of 
I still always knew I was coming back into practice. But if you, know? you get so many firsts, you can't have chanced it. So you you <laughs> maybe hit one or the other, but but then at some point the 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 two grid shows through. So and I'm 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 not surprised. So yeah. I know, I know. It's just that I mean I worked hard to get my first, you know. I didn't it didn't happen accidentally, you know. I did work hard in those years. Yeah. But anyway, I I I always knew that I was coming back to a 100% large animal practice as it was that time and have a distinct memory of going into uh, a, a class in, in final year that was to do with eye diseases and small animals and all that and thinking to myself, I don't know what the hell I'm doing in here because I'm never going to use this, you know. I'm never going to be doing small animals or anything, have anything whatsoever to do with them. And then I end up representing Ireland and the European Council. You know? So you yeah. need when you're in college, you need to study everything, you know, and don't... Yeah, yeah. Don't kind of uh, uh, tramline yourself, you know. Uh, I often tell students that that, that college is a fantastic uh, opportunity to get a panoply of knowledge, you know, and then you can hone it down afterwards if you want. Mm. So, but you so anyway, started off with large animal only, or was it mixed practice? Well, when, uh, at that stage when I was qualifying, it was a hundred percent large animal. I mean, there would have been you know, one animal a day or something, maybe small animal that might come up, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. the, 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 like, you know, it'll be done by default kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, I said to my dad, I said, look, because I've done so well in college and all that, I'd like to do an extra little bit of a degree, like maybe a master's or something, just to just to keep it as a memory of having done that, you know. And he agreed with me and that kind of thing. So I, I went to study uh, my PhD or my master's then, which was in, in um the changes in disease patterns in cattle with the association uh, associated with moving to static floor housing as opposed to straw housing, you know. And uh, my professor at the time, John Hannan, he, he died shortly after, God rest him, but um, uh, after a couple of years, he said to me, uh, he said to me, uh, um, you know, I think you should go on and do a PhD. He says, because you have all the work to do it there. If you just do a little bit more, you get, you can do a PhD, you know. So uh, I said it to me, Danny, and he said, well, that's it now. He says two more years and that's it because i'm not holding this practice on for you forever and i i have that feeling now like if i was in that position i'd feel the same you know but uh, one thing i wanted to say though in relation to this is um how important it is and we, we talked about communication before and you know being social and getting to know people and it's really important who you know as opposed to what you are very often you know and i don't mean that in the wrong sense it means that you know if you have a circle of contacts and friends it's amazing what you can get done and i saw that in in a couple of ways now and um, one in particular was that uh, at that time when i wanted to do a, a master's and that kind of thing i had kind of great ideas of going to america to good universities in america so a guy called joe quinn professor joe quinn said to me look at reply to all those universities and you'll, you'll be accepted to some of them for sure you know so i was accepted into davis california and i was in, uh, settled into wisconsin and kansas and all sorts of places you know but the one i really wanted was cornell and uh, i got a disastrous reply from Con cornell from a dean poppenseek to say that uh, they were fully booked out for four years and that when i applied in four years time i'd be in exactly the same position as i am now kind of thing you know so my father came up anyway about two weeks later and i was telling him this and he says uh, i'll leave that with me he says you know so he was he was friendly with there's a, a, a research institute called Johnstown Castle, which is quite near to where we live. We worked for them and all that. And it was a legendary kind of head of that called Dr. Tom Welsh. So he, he went into Tom Welsh anyway and said, explained my position. Oh, I said, that's not a problem, he says, you know. Two weeks later, I got a letter from Dean Poppenseek to say that he was eagerly awaiting my application. <laughs> oh, 
yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, it is it is networking. It's networking. Yeah, you, it's the same part just... uh, to who you know, you know. And uh, but but um, anyway, as it turned out, I got a scholarship to do the work in Ireland, and it had to be done in Ireland and on Irish Catholic Irish circumstances, etc. You know. So uh, anyway, did PhD. I worked I worked in in UCD and are in Trinity and Trinity College and um, uh, with the well, Chagas here, which would be the kind of agricultural research outfit, you know. But it, and usually at the end of it, because Trinity College and UCD had merged during the time, they offered me to, to take the degree from either Trinity College or from UCD, whichever I wished. So I chose mm -hmm. to take it from Trinity College because mm -hmm. I already had a degree from UCD, you know, and now I'm recognized by two universities. So and then that was important as well, you know. So I was conferred mm -hmm. with Roy Jenkins and all that time. It was, it was uh, quite an interesting time, you know. Mm -hmm. So then, um, as I say, my father came up and gave me an ultimatum, says either you get down here and work now. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. practice, you know? so I went down, that was 1978, and I, I joined the, the practice then at that stage. And the first thing I did uh, I was obviously living in a, in a different house out in the country. And the first thing I did was I opened a clinic in the, in the back room in my dwelling house, you know. And uh, that was the start of the small animal and the bar practice, really. And in, uh, when was it now? Yeah, 79. so I, I worked there for a long time, but it's very unsatisfactory. And in my present house now, I absolutely refuse to do any veterinary here whatsoever because I have nobody coming down here into this place, you know, uh, because it was very invasive. And, you know, like my ex-wife used to be maybe sunbathing out the back and these itinerants <laughs> to come around looking for <laughs> medicine for a greyhound or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. But the great thing that happened to me, I think it was 1989, but I can't remember when, went off on holidays to Mauritius or someplace like that. And I came back and there was a queue of, I suppose, 50 to 100 cars down the road, all looking to get vaccinated for parvovirus. Remember when parvovirus came first? It was a bonanza, that's all, you know? <laughs> so uh, I, I, remember I remember that I was, I was not at that time, but I was in 80, when was that? In 91 or 92, I was in yeah. working in Norway and well, they had a parvovirus outbreak and most of the dogs in Norway were not vaccinated. And I had this Danish colleague who was a, not a good sort of clinical vet. He then actually went into fish medicine. So, and he's really oh, yeah. good. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a clever guy, but see, sort of the, the manual part of veterinary medicine, that was really not his thing, but yeah. he was a really good chef. So he yes. really could cook very well. And I remember that we were sort of then uh, lining up all the clients sort of outside of his flat. I mean, I was working on a little island community on the coast of Norway. And yeah. sort of clients were with their dogs sort of standing in a long line. I was doing on the sort of kitchen table, I was doing the vaccinations and yeah. I had sort of two heaps of money, one left and right. It was all cash <laughs> payment. And he was sort of a next room in the kitchen, sort of preparing a fantastic meal. And I said, come on, I do the vaccinations, you do the cooking, <laughs> yeah. and, we, and we split the money. And it yeah, was yeah, yeah. brilliant. I had a fantastic meal. He was a happy bunny. The clients were all very, very happy. So, and it was, I mean, it was a one-off experience. And when you say that, that they were suddenly sort of queuing, yeah, these things sometimes happen. And yeah. I mean, still sometimes happen. I mean, because of yeah. uh, COVID, um, we have at the moment shortage switch uh, uh, in Germany, shortage of 
uh, myxomatosis and of uh, cat flu vaccines. Mm -hmm. All Just right, yeah, yes, we have that. Yeah, too, yeah. yeah. supply is not always guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. So anyway, uh, as a result of that, I, I kind of had got a bit of money together, and I, I in that year, 1989, 90 time, I uh, doubled the size of the surgery, then put a new building in, and all that kind of thing, you know, of the clinic rather, and uh, then opened a shop across the yard. Then a couple of years later, and you know gradually gradually the, the practice has changed from you know 100 large animal to probably 90 small animal now you know and i've just gone with the flow with that i've really enjoyed it as you know i love the small animal practice and uh, we um you know we, we operate to a pretty high standard as well you know i think anyway you know and like it's uh, it's been very good to me and uh, i've had you know great people pass through the, the, the clinic and all that kind of thing you know but uh it brings me now no 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 great surprise also this is sort of this change sort of of uh, the um the focus of the clinic i mean when when yeah. you started off sort of small animal work was possibly a little bit of pocket money on the side whereas today i mean i i did last year i uh, i worked at a at a clinic uh, in bradford in yorkshire and stayed mm. with a uh, with a hill farmer and uh, he was just not getting any vet to help with the lambing. Sort of, uh, say yeah. a cesarean in a, uh, in a sheep, nobody does it. Or if it's done, then it's out of the, the goodness of the heart of, uh, of a vet to do, to do a cesarean for, yeah, for peanuts. Whereas, and I mean, what's, what's a lamb worth? It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's sometimes a two-figure sum. Whereas a French bulldog puppy... 2,000, 3,000 pounds. Mm. So, yeah, so absolutely. no surprise that suddenly no. there is the money to pay for, for veterinary care for pets, but no longer for livestock. Mm. And you see, Wolfgang, that's a huge problem facing the profession. And one that I'm really glad that I'm dodging now is that um, with small animals, for example, this corporate group that are buying my practice, one of their ideas is to open a, a kind of a, like the Dublin Area Emergency Clinic where they would take in all of the night work and do it and then return it back to the practices the following day, you know, at a mm. premium, of course, you know, but, but, uh, but you transfer that to the large animal. How do you bring a, a horse or colleague in a trailer, like from 50 miles away, you know, and you can't do it. And there's nobody to do with that anymore. We can't get large animal vets anymore, you know, uh, they, they just don't want to know. So that's a huge problem coming down the line for, for all of the large animal sector, you know, mm. and I don't know how they're going to solve it. I don't know how they're going to solve it because they can't, they can't kind of pay them extra because the, the market doesn't, you know, uh, allow that. Like the, the difference between kind of slaughtering an animal and paying for it to be treated is possibly a hundred euros, you know, mm. and a hundred euros is the price of any, of any call almost, you know. So that's a huge problem down the line, I think, you know, and one that I've been avoiding largely, you know. So anyway, that kind of more, more or less brings us up to the present day. As you know, like Natalie, my partner came, she worked with me for a while and now we're married. We've been married or together for 20 years nearly or whatever. And, you know, but she doesn't practice that, or that kind of thing, but she breeds her cats and that kind of stuff. And thankfully she raises her kids really well. So, you know, that has that, that allowed me to work, you know. Where where did then your involvement with Vikas start? Because I mean, you were the Irish representative. Because I mean, sort of just listening to you, you can I can imagine sort of <laughs> you're a busy, busy, busy man, and yet sort yeah. of you find the time 
sort of to do voluntary work to represent sort of uh, um, a big small animal veterinary organization as well. So how how did you get into that? Well, you just have to make the effort, you know. I mean, uh, one of the things is that I, I always used to go to my, my um, uh, local clinical society, like for further education, that kind of thing, long before the point system or anything came in, you know. But my nearest one was up in Kilkenny, like, which is about, I don't know what, 60, 70 miles away, you know. And, mm. uh, like, you know, going up there on icy winter nights, like, was no joke, you know. But I kind of got involved with what was then the Irish Veterinary Association, that kind of thing. And uh, we, uh, like, way back, like in 1986, for example, we ran a World Veterinary Conference for cattle, the Cattle mm. Veterinary mm. Conference. And I don't know if you have time for me to tell you a little story about it, but but uh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there was a friend of mine talking about who you know. There was a friend of mine, Harry Green, who was a professor in the veterinary college, and unfortunately, he was the second person in Ireland to get a heart transplant, and he died on the table. But he had demanded on the way in that they take a video so he could show it at the conference. But anyway, Harry was a gas ticket, and he was he was off in Mexico, and he was the only Irish delegate in Mexico, and they were looking for. Uh, uh, offers to how or to uh, run the conference in 1986 and this may be 1978 or 80 or something like that you know Harry puts up his hand anyway and says oh we'd all love to go to Ireland you know mm-hmm. he came home with the conference in the bag so what does he do he rings up his four friends myself Kevin O'Farrell um, and yeah. uh, at Hardigan a few of us you see and he says listen man, I've got this conference he says in the bag I want to make a fortune out of it you know <laughs> he says It'd only be the five of us. Now he says the snag is he says that we have to set up an Irish Catholic Association because there wasn't one in existence. You will be yeah. president, you will be secretary, you yeah, will be treasurer. Yeah, yeah. He held one meeting, there were 20 people at it, and now we were there wasn't an official organization, you know. So then yeah. I remember we met and they needed a hundred thousand beforehand to get it started. That was an awful lot of money back that time. Like it wasn't yeah, yeah. too much money for me. As it's in practice earning good money, but for the guys who were in universities and things like that, it was a lot of money. So we all had to go off to our bank anyway to organize this £20,000 loan, you see, to run this thing, you know. And uh, we came back anyway, and Harry says, I have a great idea. He says, <laughs> he says, uh, we'd, we'd go down to Waterford Glass and we'd buy the biggest piece of Waterford Glass you can find there, which was a thousand pounds, you know. It was a magnificent piece, you know. I says, we'd take a photograph of it and we'd post it out to everybody and say, everybody who has their money in before the first of January gets into the draw for this thing. <laughs> and we had 150,000 in before the first of January. Everything was going swimmingly. We, the five of us were organizing it like a massive you know how big these things are like and it was a massive thing mm-hmm. in Trinity College all that kind of thing. the night before hurricane you know not at all it was gone the next day everybody came in and all our colleagues like in, in the Irish colleagues like the local farmer type or um, large animal type vets you know were coming up and saying uh, there must be a fair few quid in this, yeah. <laughs> he mm-hmm. said, Oh, not at all. We'd be lucky to break even, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, it went off brilliant for about five days and, and it was all over. The five of us went into the, there's a round room in Trinity College which is panelled with timber and there's no windows in it. And we just put a bottle of whiskey on the table and said, Yes, we did it. <laughs> and we made a bit of money out of it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of how, how I got involved, you know, with the, with the original Irish Veterinary Association, that kind of thing. Yeah. But then uh, that went on into Veterinary Ireland, and Veterinary Ireland then had Vicas. And by now, I was getting more interested in small animals and that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm interested in the politics of it as well and kind of trying to help people in that, you know. So um, then 
you know, then eventually they were looking for somebody to go to Europe and, and kind of, uh, I think, was it Andrew was there before me, Andrew Byrne? And uh, yeah, so. he was giving up. So I said, yeah, after I go, you know, and she's uh, and it was a fantastic experience, you know. Fantastic. I mean, it is all we, all we we always had to really active. I mean, with you and Andrew and also now yeah. with Holmes, sort of really super active directors and people who really sort of also drives the organization. I mean, and it was that's the tragedy though. The tragedy though, Wolfgang, is that uh, the British guys were the people who really ran it, like yourself and Simon and all those, you know. I mean, they were, they were amazing people. And, and, you know, that is such a loss to Ficada because they're, they're influencing. And, and, like, it's a loss to them too, you know. I mean, they, because that system worked really, really well. Look at all the days that, that, that we ran those things, produced brilliant kind of, um, um, what would I call them, um, you know, our posters and all that kind of stuff, like, you know, all mm. the work that went into that. And it was moderated so well by the British people. Like I know, like we we were there as well, like to kind of offer support and all that kind of thing. But I mean, it was just such a good time. And I don't mm. know that. Yeah, I think losing the British from that group is a tragedy. You know. Yes. Yeah. 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 Now, yeah. Mm. I mean, sort of BSAVA continues to look towards Europe, and it's uh, um, uh, one of really the the, the main members of the Kaaba. So I mean, it's it's not so. Uh, being no longer member of the EU doesn't include exclude you completely from a lot of European or from oh, all yeah. Europe from from a lot but not from all European bodies and I mean that's the beauty with Fekava we have possibly half of our members are or or a large proportion are actually not EU members and still works yeah. very well mm -hmm. so yeah uh, I mean our president was <laughs> Dennis speaking Serbian Serbia is not an yes. EU member yeah yeah so, yeah yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, um, the, and the Japanese applied. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it's it's in any case sort of. Uh, I mean, that's that's a beauty with sort of bodies like Fikava that you have this sort of exchange of thoughts from people with a completely different um, educational and cultural background. Mm -hmm. So I think they it's very sometimes, important. Yeah, they sometimes just see problems. Uh, uh, from a different angle, and then it's actually so not not such a big issue, and you 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 realize maybe your own nation is agonizing about something, but you don't necessarily maybe maybe you 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 are a little bit of a in a cool sack and you don't know how to move forward, and others show you the way or have really clever ideas how to how to work these problems. Mm. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, and I, and I mean. You know yeah, yeah, no, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, you know, I often said to people, you know, it, it's that that meeting of nations there like that that actually stops us from going to war with another, you know, because, I mean, you know, you get to respect people and get friends with them. And, you know, you say, I'm not going to go to war with those people, you know, like, and, and uh, like, it's, it, it makes us, makes us much more united, I think, you know. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the nice thing sort of with, with having you in the working groups was, I mean, uh, you were uh, somewhat older than some other people in the working group, but you were probably mm -hmm. always one of the most active uh, sort of members of the working group. And I mean, when, when, when you left the cover, you, it really created a whole sort of a personal whole. I'm not, as I said, Danny is also doing great representation. Of, I 
of, uh, of veterinary island uh, or vikas but um uh, it's more sort of the 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 personality sort of said that that uh, despite sort of all the years sort of you spent already in practice you were always trying to do new stuff and i mean yeah. one thing for example was and sitting down in the uh, uh, a hygiene and uh, antimicrobial resistance group and coming up with our uh, infographics mm, so, mm. Uh, in, in, in cooperation with uh, Alex Wielen. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, was probably one of the greatest achievements of the Kava. And I mean, these posters that you created and, and you with Alex and the working group created, they are now translated in, in multiple languages and, and, and all over Europe. Mm, and, yeah, they are uh, almost become a global standard, really, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. No, but, but, but I mean, also in your in your own practice, I mean, I, you, you, for example, do a plasma surgery at your practice. Yes, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I do. And I mean, that is, <laughs> I have, I've never touched anything <laughs> like that. So, this it's is, absolutely uh, brilliant. Talking about you know? having worked with it. So, you, so yeah. despite sort of uh, so many years of experience, always trying something new. Yeah, I couldn't live without the air plasma now. It's just brilliant, you know, yeah. and uh, especially for tumor removal like Wolfgang, it's absolutely dream time for tumor, yeah. tumor removal because you're yeah. never going to leave. It, it just separates the actual tissues precisely, you know, and uh, what is not good for now is cutting through muscles so that, for example, doing a flank incision in a cap for an overhysterectomy, it wouldn't be good there. And it's not good in the presence of blood either, of profuse blood, you know. But used in combination with, say, cautery iron or whatever, you know, it, it's it's a great way of surgery, you know. But anyway, that's that, that, that was for later. We we're going to talk about instruments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have one one instrument except for the way, uh, other than the the air plasma scalpel that you would say so you would never like to be without or that was well i have a collection of props here now okay okay <laughs> to show okay. Them to one by one, so what can you, you know? present us well the first the first thing i would say is that the air plasma machine is just the yeah. magic instrument i have at the minute you know and uh, like i just love using it i don't actually own it believe it or not my friend owns it but i have the use of it uh, but i use it every day like you know but um yeah a few things here so this is the first thing now i don't know if you can see this 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 is a very Which? simple thing I, but yeah. this is the one thing that i would lose sleep if i lost i mean i i, I have that from day one in veterinary practice and it was given to me by a farmer he had it he had it it's, it's a touch for a horse you know what a touch is a twitch yeah 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 yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For, put on the nose but it's really yeah. it's really smooth and honed you know and uh, mm. it must be 50 over 50 years old now but uh it's the advantage of it is that it's very easy to use and it, if it hits you in the head or whatever it's not going to knock you out like some of the bigger ones do you know yeah but yeah. Uh, but yeah I admired it anyway, and I said to him, and I said, God, that's a beautiful piece of work. You know, he says, he says, here, he says, you can have it. He says, and I hope you're lucky with it, he says, because, uh, and you uh, respect it, he says, and be lucky with it. And I can tell you, I've been so lucky with it. Like, with horses, <laughs> anyway. I've had a great time. So that's the one thing that I wouldn't like to lose out of my car, you know? Okay. So the oldest thing, right? Okay. <laughs> one of the oldest things in the practice in my father's time is this, right? Beautiful box. It's clap, right? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful piece of work. 
Yeah. Watch this. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Please with me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can see this property or not, but but it's it's mostly used as a prop in plays now. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Look at that. Can we have it again? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. My head. That's it. But the thing is, I mean, we are talking at the moment about waste avoidance in veterinary practice. And yeah. uh, admittedly, I mean, we are going through hundreds of syringes sometimes in a, a, in a single right. day in a busy clinic. Yeah. And I, I sometimes wonder, yes, will we see these glass syringes back again? one way or the other. I don't know, sort of buy for for the same sort of solutions for for different I wonder, patients. yeah. Well, I was aware of that, of course. When, when I was young, like my father would have a saucepan and there'd be four or five different sizes of syringes and needles and that yeah. kind of thing. And they would be boiled every morning, like for use yeah. during the day. And then mm -hmm. reboiled the next morning and so on, you know? Yeah. And do you have one more item for us? Sort of, or these were you items? Okay. So maybe this one I should show you. This one, this one yep. is what made the biggest difference in my practice. This was the first mobile phone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that was the most liberating thing I ever had. Unbelievable. No. Uh, Peter, I was so lucky because when I um, when I saw practice sort of for the first time when I was in my uh, in my fourth year. I had the luck to work with a with a vet in the north of Norway, and he was the, one of the first sort of people who um, who owned one of these um, that was an Ericsson phone, and it was this huge brick of a battery, and then the sort of the phone on top. And I yeah. thought this is the most marvelous thing I've ever Invention, seen. Invention, yeah. So suddenly. There's no one who is tied to the phone uh, to, 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 to guard the phone. I just take the phone with me and I'm mobile. And if I'm on call, I just have, I, okay, it's heavy, it's big, but I have this beast with me in my backpack and people can reach me. And I thought yeah. this is just so brilliant. What I at the time sort of didn't think well that it got sort of a little bit, a little bit lighter and a little bit more powerful. <laughs> at the same time. But I part. so agree. I so agree. Yeah. Made a huge difference, you know. And there were thirty of them in Ireland, and I had two of them. <laughs> so yeah. So, yeah. Okay. That's how so, they were. And you said you have one more beauty. This is, this is the last one now. I don't okay. know if you can see that. You can see that. Yeah. So it's two halves. That's one half. The large yeah. animals. It's a troca or no. Okay. 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 <laughs> what is it for? I have no idea. I'll tell you about it. It's, it's an American piece of equipment that I bought a, a long time ago. And the reason I bought it was that at the time uh, it was uh, thought that uh, in, uh, to avoid using hormones in cattle that if they could do an overectomy in the cattle, in the heifers, that they would put on weight quicker. So this is a, this is a, 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 a piece of kit to do an overectomy in cattle. And what you do is, you see this pointy part here? Yeah, yeah. You put that, yeah. You put that in through the vagina and push it through the vaginal wall into the, into the perineal area. Then you, you, have, your, you have your hand with the, in per rectum, you catch the ovary and you put it into that hole there, right? And then you turn this and it cuts the ovary. 
and then it pushes this part here pushes that ovary down into the end of the of the tube yeah you then open it up again go across to the other side put the second ovary in there and and just cut it up cut it through and pull out simple job i think some you know, some some of our female listeners might have fainted by now too but it's Oh, Wouldn't think you've seen one of those before, though. They're not common. No, no, I think so. It's probably good, so that's not <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, no. That's, no, that worked well. Worked very well, actually, you know. Uh, but never use it now. But yeah. nice, piece of, yeah. nice piece of kit, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. Um, hmm. So, what's... If you, if, if you look back now, and if you could do things sort of differently... Um, so if I say sort of one thing that if you could get it, give it a second, would give it a second go, um, sort of at the time when you graduated, what would you do? What would you have done differently? I, I often think about that. And I don't think there's anything I'd have done differently. You know, I'm really happy okay. with my life, the way I've lived it. And I, it's been exactly what I've wanted to do. So in other words, I'm really glad I, I didn't end up in university in America permanently. Like, I'm really glad I didn't up, end up in academia at all. Like, really, you know. Uh, and uh, I've had a great life, you know. The one thing mm. about it is, like, that, we, which we haven't touched on, uh, but we barely touched on in the beginning, is about communication and socialization and having fun and you know the stories like you know i mean there's so many stories from 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 practice that i remember and tell them all the time to to to, to people to clients and all that kind of thing you know i was only talking tonight actually to a client about when my when my father was in these very early days in the in practice uh he he used to like things in ireland in 1950s were very very poor you know and he used to go out to these kind of single men that would be very poorly dressed and you know just living in hovels really you know so he went out to this guy anyway one day and he says, uh, oh, Mike, he says, I have great news for you today. He says, he says to my father, you know, and what's that, John? He says, this is my, this is my dad, you know, he says, I'm getting married, he says, in a couple of weeks. What, says my father, you can't bring a woman in here, he says. <laughs> There's not, nothing here whatsoever, he says, you know, you're going to have to spruce the place up or you won't, you know. So what mm. you're doing, he says, go into Trice's hardware shop and buy an electric cooker, he says, at least that you won't have to cook on the open fire like in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the living room, you know. And he says, while you're in there, you could get a washing machine as well, because you can't have a washing the clothes out in the bath in the yard like you do, you know. And he says, and also you might consider, you know, catching her heart with maybe an electric kettle or something like that, you know. And your man looked him straight in the eye and says, if I got all that, I wouldn't need to get married at all. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> so it's all those little stories, you know, like that go way back, you know, that, that, that yeah. uh, I, 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 I sat down a couple of nights, or not a couple of nights, about a couple of months ago for about one hour one night, and I ended up with 54 stories, so I haven't gone back to add to it since, but there's just so many, you know, but the other one I, lo I love telling is that um, when I, uh, around 1981, uh, I employed a vet called Dan Govins, who was a real sociable guy now, you know, full of the communication thing and all that. Wouldn't have been great. It was a good vet, you know, but not. he always just wanted to work and, and that kind of thing, you see. So anyway, I also had a man who used to, who had worked for us for years, like catching cattle and that kind of thing. So you can imagine that Dan and Pat went out together, you see, to this farmer anyway. And 
we knew that like Pat and myself would always know that the hygiene would be very low on the agenda with this guy, you know. And they'd always ask him for a cup of tea himself and the mother, you know. But we'd always have an excuse made before we went out that we wouldn't need to go in because, you know, it was so dirty and that kind of thing. So then the mother died and things got even worse, of course, you know. So now Dan, Dan has joined the practice now. And he's going for us. And your man is, they always will do these guys. Say, yeah, come in for a cup of tea now when you're done. You know? Oh, yes, it's going to be nice. I like it. And Pat's in the background, he's going <laughs> like this, you know, <laughs> don't go in. So, anyway, they went in anyway, and they allowed that the um, that the, the tea would kind of scald the cup and the mugs and that kind of thing, and that might be might be safe enough to drink a cup of tea, mm-hmm. you see. So, uh, your man says to Dan anyway, he says, Dan, would you like something to eat with that? Oh, that'd be great, says Dan. You know, I said, Do you have a sandwich? Yeah, lovely. So, with the sliced pan and the and the butter seat, and then he reaches up on the top of the dresser and pulls down this biscuit tin and opens it. And here's there's a block of cheese in it to see. <laughs> so Dan is there talking away to him anyway, and the cheese is like in a rectangular block. So he cuts three slices to see, and he puts them one, two, three on the slice of bread and closes the sandwich, eats the thing, and just as he's eating it, that whiff off it, he says it's absolutely rotten. <laughs> So now we can know what to do. So what did, what did he do? Well, he took the three pieces of cheese and pressed them together again. And he slipped them down into Pat's um, uh, jacket pocket, you know. This, uh, <laughs> and your man, the owner, comes back around. Anyway, he says, uh, uh, would you have a sandwich, Pat? I know, says Pat, I'll have a sack. <laughs> he pours out the three pieces of cheese instead of the bag box. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's just so many stories I could tell you, you know. <laughs> so, uh, from all that point of view, like I've had a, a, an absolutely fantastic time in Bethany, you know. And I still like doing the large animal because I get to talk to people on American farms. Yeah, but you see, I mean, that sometimes I I feel a little bit sorry for for our younger colleagues because I mean today sort of. Veterinary medicine seems to be so sanitized. So yeah, it's just everything is sort of strict. There are guidelines, there are rules, there are standard operating procedures, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. legislation. And uh, so they don't have the freedom that, that we had where, where sort of there were, there were no restrictions what sort of medication you were using. I mean, we're not talking about all the negative side effects of that. But but yeah. also some of the these funny stories. It's um, are they still oh, yeah. happening today? I mean, possibly oh, yeah. not to Surely the same are, extent. Yeah. Mm. So now you have to tell me about your your drink. What would you have if you sit down in the evening as a drink? Sort of. Okay, <laughs> is that an Irish whiskey or is that? Yes, Irish yeah. Whiskey. Oh, okay. It's- Buy it now. It's cheap as as chips, but it's got it's got awards and all that, and it's really really tasty. Yeah, so I like that that night, all right, you know, and I sleep well after, so that helps as well, you know. So uh, yeah, so the other thing was that just so that you know people uh, realize about old age and things like that is that um, I had a scare with prostate cancer about a year and a half ago, and I had um, radiotherapy and or not radiotherapy, I had brachytherapy done for that and all that, which has been highly successful, you know. But it does help to concentrate your mind, and say, you know, I can go on forever, you know. And mm-hmm. um, I think you have to be conscious of that as you get older as well, you know. That mm-hmm. you're not immortal, you know. And like I have relations on all sides of my family who have died from prostate cancer, so I have to be very vigilant, you know. So um, uh, from that point of view. Yeah, definitely, definitely that. But to get back to the early stories there still, there I had I had a woman in there 
the other day. <laughs> with her, uh, she'd gone on holidays and she'd left her dog with her sister in Tipperary or something like that. And she'd lost the dog anyway. And she says, will you keep an eye out for it? She says, this is the microchip number. Will you keep an eye out for it? And that's from me. And I, oh, well, of course, as I, you know, so what kind of a dog is it? Oh, she says, it's one of them bitching freezers. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So finally, Peter, if you would say, Mm. sort of, who is possibly the the person, sort of, maybe with the exception of your father, or maybe you can, you can, yeah, I'll have to put him first, of course. Who sort of had the, I don't know, made the the biggest impression, who uh, made a biggest difference, or or so, I think, I think, you know, probably one of the people who made the biggest impression on me wasn't a vet at all. He was he was a horse trainer, a guy called John Ox Sr. John Ox Jr. was my best friend. We were best men for one another and Godfather to our children and all the rest. But when I was uh, in sort of fourth or fifth year veterinary, I went to stay in his house for about uh, nine months. And I used to see practice with tremendous horse vets there because that was the bit that was missing out of my practice was the, the equine end, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I went to work on, I went to see practice on the Cora with Stan Cosbrook, who was involved in the Shergar thing. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, he was yeah. he was the, the vet involved in that, and with mm-hmm. a, a, an excellent vet called Ned going as well. And I learned so much from them. But old John Ox used to sit down at night. Young Johnny would go to bed early and old Johnny and himself would sit at the fire and he'd have a whiskey and I'd have a beer or whatever and we'd start to talk about things. And he was such a wise man, you know. He used to say to me, don't ever go out with them American women. He says, once they get their claws into you, never get them out. <laughs> this is about an eight-year-old man who had never mm-hmm. been out of Ireland. To but he would have met a yeah. lot of American women, the racehorses and that, all right, you know. So uh, he made a big impression on me. And then, as I say, my small animal mentors that I was talking about earlier on, they, they taught me an awful lot as well, as I said, about the Blue Cross and all that. So, uh, And then my, my teachers in school, there was a professor, John O'Connor, who was a surgeon professor like in, in the university. He was, I mean, he's legendary in Ireland, you know, and he, he had all sorts of bone moves, like he used to always say, don't ever mess with the esophagus, you know. <laughs> And, uh, uh, the irony of it was that the very first year I, I was out of uh, or into practice, I had to do uh, uh, esophageal cannulation in the capital in Johnstown Castle because they wanted to see what types of grasses they were eating, you know. So mm. if they ate the grass and it came out through the side, they'd have it in a bucket and see what, what, which ones they chose and all that, you know. We did mm. lots of them now that time. Yeah, yeah. A, a, an interesting technique, you know. So, uh, but, uh, and he used to always send the, uh, uh, you know, he was his, 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 John O'Connor's uh, field of expertise was cryptorchidism in the horse. You know, he used to always say, "If you suck with the devil, you better have a long spoon." <laughs> yep, yeah, and it's yeah, so true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Peter, so it was minutes, it it was wonderful. Thank you very much for this for fun. this uh, uh, very enjoyable. Really entertaining, and I have to say, I I learned a lot, and and I thought sort of, I mean, I'm now a few years in practice, but I and I thought I've seen it pretty much all, but no, no, there's always something new. It was, a, it was an absolute pleasure, Peter. Thank you very much. Likewise. Um, if anyone would like to comment on this episode of Recover Vet Chat or has a suggestion for new vet chats, please email us on vetchat at recover.org or contact us via our social media outlets. 
and I like to welcome you again, not too um, long away for another episode of Fikava Vechet with another interviewee somewhere else in Europe. Thank you. Thank you.